This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing a French film, Titan. It's a 2021 French film directed by Julia Dussonneau, and I'm going to kick us off. So this is a horror film about a girl who is badly injured in a car accident and has a metal plate installed in her head. Something about this experience estranges her from people, causing her to become strangely obsessed with automobiles. As an adult, she works as a showgirl at a car show. A man tries to hit on her. She murders him and then proceeds to have sex with an automobile. As it turns out, she kills people all the time and has sex with several different machines throughout the film. At one point, she becomes pregnant. She tries to give herself an abortion but fails. Eventually, all the killing starts attracting negative attention, so she changes her appearance and masquerades as a boy. She pretends to be a man's long-lost son, and he takes her in, even though on some level he clearly knows that she is not, in fact, his son. The man's estranged wife discovers the deception, but chooses not to intervene. Eventually, the girl dies while giving birth, and the man adopts the baby in her stead. I'm not sure what to make of this, to be perfectly honest with you. This film is original in the sense that you are unlikely to have seen anything that looks quite like it. But the characters behave in a totally unbelievable way. They do things that do not make sense to me. I do recognize the father's steroid habit as a desperate attempt to control the kind of body he has. In combination with the abortion plot and with the accident forcing the installation of the metal plate, we could take the film to be principally about bodily autonomy. The fixation on bodily autonomy is a symptom of liberal ideology. This is pretty straightforward. Some people are fixated on the idea that they are their body. This comes out of a micro-foundationalist view in which society is reducible to individuals and individuals are reducible to bodies. If we fetishize the individual as the base unit of society and as the root and stem of all values, and we identify the individual principally with the body, then situations in which there is a conflict between the individual's will and the body's form become fascinating and terrifying to us. If we are the body, but the body won't obey us, then how can we be the body? If we are not our bodies, who are we? This all sounds very deep if you're 14. If you have some other view, for instance, that we are souls or that we are our roles, then the body is a contingent feature of life. It both enables us to act and gets in the way of our action. There are many things our bodies can't do. We can't fly, for instance, and there are many desires that stem from embodiment, like hunger, thirst, fatigue, the sexual desire, and so on. These desires have to be handled in a moderate way. If we try to ignore them completely, our bodies and minds won't function well, and we won't be able to do the things that matter. If, on the other hand, we become enslaved by the body, the body ceases to be our tool and becomes our master. When we think we are the body, we identify completely with the desires that stem from embodiment. And then when the nature of our body disallows the fulfillment of some of those same desires, we are perplexed, confused, and upset. Inevitably, bodies age. They weaken, they get cancer or heart disease or what have you. Our bodies make it impossible for us to continue to perform the roles we used to perform. This forces us to adapt, to find new ways to be good people. The changes in the body give rise to a life cycle, a sequence of roles at different stages in the life of the body. When you are younger and your body is fitter, you perform more physical, energy-intensive roles. As you move into middle age, you use your experience and education to shift into leadership and guidance roles. In a society where material conditions remain broadly similar across time, this experience continues to be useful, and the elderly often have valuable wisdom to offer us. In societies where material conditions change more rapidly, experience diminishes in value, and the elderly struggle to find purpose. In rapidly evolving capitalist societies, we are unsure what to do with the elderly, and the elderly are unsure what to do with themselves. I'd like a movie about that problem. Instead, we get this. Oh, no, I don't control my body. It's doing things I don't want it to do. This threatens my sense of self. All oh, the horror. It reminds me of another horribly overrated film called District 9. In that film, a racist learns that racism is wrong when his body starts turning into the body of the alien species he has been oppressing. Since under liberal microfoundationalism, he is his body, 
The transformation of his body forces him into an identity crisis, and that forces him to morally transform. It's stupid. So this film is original in the sense that you are unlikely to have seen anything that looks quite like it. But it's unoriginal in the sense that it's a body horror film, and body horror films are all essentially the same. They are all about a particular hang-up that liberal individualism generates. The fixation on the body is the locus of identity. If you dump that and define people by what they do, or by whether they're good, this whole genre becomes much less interesting. One of the things I love about professional athletes is that they all must ultimately come to grips with the fact that they are not their bodies. Their bodies stop being able to do professional sports, and they're forced to find new social roles for themselves that are compatible with the stage that their bodies are at. This is hard for them, because they've lived their whole lives to that point focused completely on their ability to physically perform. It is the great ethical, spiritual, and philosophical challenge of their lives. Somehow, they must find the resources to find meaning in life, independent of their ability to play sports. Many fail, but I am a great admirer of the athletes that pillowed off. They show a kind of practical wisdom that is all too rare these days, and they often do it without recourse to the educational or philosophical resources one might think would be necessary or helpful. In the meantime, Ostensibly highly educated people make body horror films and fixate on issues of health, lifestyle, and body identity. How tiresome. From both sides of the culture war, it's tiresome. I'm tired. Maybe Nina can wake me up. Let's hear from her. <laughs> um, I, I don't know about wake you up. I, I, I've got sort of sun sleepiness from going out in the, the very rare London sun, which has just emerged. Um... <laughs> but I'll, I'll do my best to to faint. I'll put on the persona of a of a perky person who's drank too much coffee. Um, yeah, I I found this film, especially the first half. I found the the premise of this film. I I found it a little bit like as if someone had told someone else about David Cronenberg's crash, but instead of understanding that the film was actually like a kind of uh, a metaphor or a, a film about the symbols of modernity's sacrificial par paradoxes. It was literally some, all someone understood was sex with cars. Um, and th th this was like a really sort of basic bitch level understanding of Cronenberg's idea in the, the crash novel and then above well, in Ballard's crash and then in the Cronenberg film. Um, and in that sense, it's kind of unbearably literalist. Um, the idea of having parts of like the same metal inserted into your body as then the thing that you then become obsessed with and the idea about well if we can break the limits of sex and sex is no longer about reproduction between men and women then why can't you be impregnated by a car and so on and that so I find I find that very sort of irritating to begin with and then the second thing I found like just kind of abhorrent, really. And I think this is often a feature of transgressive French, or this is Franco-Belgian, I think, but let's say broadly French cinema that is to do with ideas of female freedom, which is how often they make women murderers. <laughs> and in this case, this woman is a murderer for literally no reason at all, right? Like she, she kills anybody she has a relationship with, whether it's like a burgeoning sexual relationship, whether she sets fire to her parents, whether she kills random people she's agreed to have, have an orgy with. Um, she's always using her, her hairpin, which I suppose is some sort of t terrible symbol of femininity, you know, having long hair, having to care for it. And, and then, you know, as she becomes a boy, quote unquote, by pretending to be the son of this, this, this poor fireman, fire chief, she, uh, you know, doesn't need the hairpin anymore because she, she has no hair, but she still maintains it as a kind of potential weapon. And I find the fact that they made her a kind of murderer, presumably triggered by the trauma of the childhood accident. But in the first place, she's an annoying brat. And the whole thing is maybe she's sort of bad all along and, you know, what happens when you have bad women uh, and what they end up doing. And it's always to do with with murder and say, in, in these French films. It's like this is this is the, the height of the flip side of the bourgeois French fantasy is that women unleashed will just start murdering people. I mean, maybe this is really the repressed idea that people in very bourgeois countries have. But anyway, I also find this incredibly annoying 
for the reason that parts of the second half, I think, where the, the main character has this delusional relationship with the fire chief, delusional in, in, in multiple ways, where the, where she actually establishes a relationship with this father who, who takes on various sort of paternal roles um, towards his quote-unquote son. And I thought there was some interesting stuff there, but it was interesting because it wasn't literal, because it involved this dimension of fantasy and and desire and longing on both parts um, to be in this sort of strange relationship in which there were various hidden aspects and it wasn't quite so literal anymore. But it, it just annoyed me so much that they'd made her this kind of serial killer in the first half because I'd, then it became very difficult. Maybe this is the the point of the film to to sort of relate or identify or care about this this woman who who was just killing people for no reason and 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 therefore the fact that she was sort of building this relationship or having this burgeoning um you know set of values maybe to do with kind of loyalty and dependency and interdependence um just sort of meaningless in a nihilistic way and i i didn't think it was transgressive in any particularly interesting way there are many more interesting transgressive films at the level of like i don't know transgression of form transgression of content uh you know transgression of the idea um and so i i found it yeah just um i suppose simply symptomatic therefore of a kind of nihilistic culture which thinks that like you know as benjamin very well articulated that if the horizon of possibility is the body all we can really imagine is doing things to or with our body and this is like the height of of anything including transgression and um you know again i mean maybe my my sort of only real major point then is 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 perhaps a broader one about the the imaginaries of a certain kind of bourgeois faux feminism or pseudo feminism that imagines that an unrepressed woman would simply be a violent or destructive woman as if that would be uh, some form of reparation or equality or something interesting for the bourgeoisie and i think a lot of cinema is still stuck in this idea of like epate la bourgeoisie like you know what will shock a, a seeming a, a potential bourgeois audience and i'm not sure the bourgeois audience still exists in the same way as those as transgression did in the 60s and 70s let's say and also i think in the intervening period we've seen the slide of transgression and anonymity and playfulness slip from the left to the right as as angela nagel and other people have mentioned um and so i i think there's something kind of in in that sense almost old-fashioned paradoxically about this film you know and 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 perhaps cars in that sense do represent an older mode of thing e even in cronenberg's uh, retelling of ballard's crash the the fixation is ultimately on james dean's car and the, and the car is this symbol of an american century from the 1960s and in this film the the lead character is dancing with um i don't know sort of slightly dated trucks and and things like this you know it's a fetishization of a car or an image of a of a lifestyle of freedom on the road from a slightly earlier period um which again i think sort of dates it in a in an uneven and sort of uninteresting way so th those are just my thoughts all right let's hear what helen's got for us yeah so i mean first of all i will say that the film is uh you know well made structurally and not in terms of narrative structure but just in terms of like material putting it together you know it's nicely shot and stuff but the question that I was sort of left with the entire time was, and this is sort of slightly what Nina you're touching on is sort of and dot, 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 you know, as in, you know, for example, this idea of the cars and potentially, you know, the I'm going to use this as an, in an ironic way because this really made me see, feel as if somebody who has a very um, primitive understanding of Lacan through film studies would you know, really, this is like the wet dream of the gays because there's so many people looking at each other, like men, men, male gays, quote unquote, looking at the car, you know. And But so the first point being that, like, so these men in this early scene maybe have some libidinal connection to the car and then these women gyrating on top are sort of the cover story for the fact that they're sexually attracted to the car, maybe, but sort of like 
and you know <laughs> you know it just it felt it felt very half baked on a on a on on a sort of level of ethics and ideas and also of course this idea of of gaze is not just about looking it's precisely about the lack encountered through looking at something so it's like the, the void staring back at you and this brings me on to something that i thought was quite interesting was this idea of recognition so we have these father figures who look and don't look when the daughter when the main character is in her being annoying in the car at the beginning you know the the, the father seems indifferent and annoyed and doesn't seem to look at her and then she meets this father figure later on this hyper masculine father figure who seems actually slightly more dialectical in a way and um who takes care of her, you know, semi, semi car child and who, you know, is looking for his son and sort of like accepts this woman masquerading as her son, sort of like in, in this sort of paternalistic um, search for something to take care of. And there's some sort of like gaze of recognition. Again, that is the wrong term to use, but sort of there's a recognition in the approach that he has towards her and the recognition is necessary. So um, a a coming to formation of an ego and of a self demands recognition from other people. And that recognition is reliant on the divided nature of the other. Um, And maybe, you know, part of the reason why she murders is because she doesn't really she hasn't had that recognition from her father. I don't know if something was... But again, it's a sort of and. I'm, I'm not really sure. Which leads me to my next point, which is, obviously this, this has the look of a horror film, but is it a horror film or a mess, right? Because the thing is, and, and, and again, to relate it to this, this and question, it's like, film is not just film because it, you know, is stuff that appears on screen with a projection with actors and with a camera and all this kind of stuff. It's film because it gets us to encounter our gaze of lack. And really this is where film is its most is a is a supremely emancipatory art form and where it challenges the neoliberal order. And it requires all of these things like narrative to hook us by desire to get us to libidinally invest in a film, to be confronted with something at a certain point. And sort of all bets are hedged when it is a bit of a mess, when it's not, because obviously, you know, and I think Nina, you you alluded to this in terms of the kind of like the quote unquote anti-bourgeois, you know, sort of anarchic fuck everything kind of approach. We don't really live in a, in an era where that bourgeois class, I mean, it exists in a very different, different way these days. You know, we're in this sort of neoliberal universal precarity age and I think that precisely what is necessary in terms of the ethical political and philosophical power of film is confronting us with the gaze of lack which confronts us with the emptiness of neoliberalism um, in which we are um, imprisoned because of our investment in the ideology of promise so having something that's just a half-assed mess really misses a trick I think and, you know, I talked about we talked about horror last time. And I think horror, again, I think what, where horror can be interesting is is this confrontation of the ambivalence of the desire of the other. But I don't think that we can get to the point of confronting that unless we are almost led by the hand to engage in a film in a certain way. It's like um, Lacan's point that only a Christian can be an atheist. It's in giving yourself over to something that you, you encounter the hollowness of that thing. And I think film is like a place where this can happen. Again, you know, you go through the cure and psychoanalysis, engaging sort of through your transferential relationship with the analyst for, in order for the analyst to be revealed as, you know, just another average sort of person. And that average, sort, the encounter with the average sort of person makes you realise that there is an, there is the, an other of the other. There is no wholeness and completeness. There is no utopia. There is no possibility to transcend lack. Therefore, everything that we're doing in the name of trying to fill, the whole, fill our lack is pointless, including neoliberalism, which, you know, the utopian fantasy sustain, enemy making stain, all this, all these sort of terrible oppositional identitarian politics which, which mark our age. So film is psychoanalytic. And I think this film therefore misses a trick. And precisely, it is not threatening to the neoliberal order because it's not really saying anything. It's sort of, you know, we get a bit of a vision that like, you know, gender, blah, 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 gender, blah, 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 women. But like, and? 
you know, um, and I think also, I mean, this blah, blah, blah gender, just as what you were saying with the blah, blah, blah machines, is a highly neoliberal ideological dynamic, this sort of constant questioning, this constant eroding of the sand beneath, beneath our feet, because it's almost the first part of the dialectic. It's like, yes, OK, gender is is um, something something that is ambivalent and contradictory. But there is no other side of this ambivalence and contradiction. You know, there is no emancipation in just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there is the tarrying with that contradiction is the other side of the dialectic and just sort of being a bit sort of adolescent and whatever about it isn't, you know, in a way it gets us to tolerate um, the ambivalence precisely not to do anything emancipatory with that ambivalence and that ambivalence is recognizing the contradiction that marks everything so you know in terms of horror and where you know what i think is interesting about horror you know often it's about these maternal figures and you know i'm not a gender essentialist but there is this idea of ambivalence and gender and that there are you know there's maybe not an essentialism in gender but there are fundamental differences in um different others you know you have the the first other and the second other the mother other the first other and then the second other so the mother other where you are um uh you first you know are rested from the mother's breast and that's the first other and then the second other sort of the no of the father which enters you into subjectivity and there is something horrifying about the unknown desire of the other you know that the um this confronting the fact that this other is Again, like the, the analyst is not at one with themselves and the horror genre gets us to confront the sort of like, what does this, which character, for instance, from the witch, what do they want? You know, and the answer is, you know, we don't know. And that's what's so, so horrific. Um, you know, I, there, we have been asked to um, analyze this film a few times. So that's why I chose it. Um, but I sort of a little bit bereft in terms of, you know, what to say, but just in terms of um, politically speaking, it doesn't surprise me that this film um, won uh, Cannes in 2021. I think it is maybe interesting to some people. It's different, it's unusual, but it is precisely not threatening to the neoliberal order. And I think uh, in terms of the quote-unquote identities of those involved in production. You know, this is something that is um, conducive to a certain vision, self-vision, that must be sustained um, in our industry right now. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it, really. Yeah, I have, a, I have a question. If the gender of the lead character was switched, if it was a boy at the start of the film, and if instead of masquerading as the opposite gender, the boy just like dyed his hair and like grew a beard or something. Uh, would anybody talk about this film? Probably I not. Think, you know, I think I, the director who made District 9, uh, Neil Blomkamp, he made a couple of other films. One is Elysium and another is Chappie. Now, people say that District 9 is really good and Elysium is maybe okay, and Chappie is bad. District 9 is about race. Elysium is about economic inequality. And Chappie, Chappie doesn't seem to really be about very much at all, maybe robots or something, or humanization of AI. Uh, the difference in the critical response to those three films is, I think, largely predicated on what social issue they're about and not on whether those films are intellectually developed, because none of them are. They're all uh, full of holes of all kinds. But in this day and age, if you are talking about a particular social issue, because that social issue is considered important, you're given a lot of room by critics who don't want to be seen to be uh, nagging someone who is on the right side of the right issue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this is where, you know, the cultural industry and, the, you know, the cultural products of neoliberalism are precisely propagandistic and it doesn't have to be in just in terms of, you know, their explicit message, but also, and, you know, to be honest, I do think that, you know, um, theme, I don't think 
film should have a message. I do think art is about message. I think if there's any message, it's that there is no message precisely. And often, you know, people are so used to having a message that when you don't have a message, you're accused of having a message, which is hilarious because, you know, um, but I think it's to do with, you know, audiences conditioning. But um, just anecdotally, um, I learned of a few things. I didn't want to name names because I think that'd be unfair. Like uh, the last few weeks, based on some work experience I've had, kind of coming to understand that this, the mode of um, the distribution of prizes has always been thus, but at different periods of time, um, the ideology is perhaps more, you know, um, um, you know, like more explicitly bad. And I think this film in terms of its quote unquote originality you know, obviously one has to not confront oneself constantly with the fact that, you know, the um, ideology industry aspect of the arts, which unfortunately, because of the nature of neoliberalism, like it, it often isn't certainly what people see and what, what is promoted is. Um, you have to sort of like prevent people from too consciously coming to confront this. And so you know, you're always sort of looking out for something really wacky or whatever that seems to defy categorization, but precisely in the defiance of categorization, it's doing the same thing. Yeah. No, I mean, I think this idea of like, you know, the female rebellion or the female rebel, and then, you know, with a bit of like gender bending and like playing with gender stereotypes, you know, when she, uh, as a boy, quote unquote, repeats the sexy dance towards the Mm -hmm. end. Uh, to a load of men who've been firemen who've been dancing with each other in a, in a sort of quasi homoerotic way, and then they're all shocked when they see that this boy, quote unquote, who who half of them don't believe it's a boy and they know who it is. They know it's this female murderer <laughs> on the run, um, or at least some of them do. Uh, you know, then da- gyrates in a, se- a female sexy sexy way, quote unquote, or a feminine way, mm-hmm. but wearing men's clothes. You know, as if this is like the height of like shock or transgression or something exactly. and it's and it and it's so silly like it's you know and i agree that this is nothing to do with the you know uh, ambiguity or ambivalence or a film that would genuinely make you think but everything to do with the current sort of trend or or voguishness of certain ideas mm-hmm. around gender which are not even particularly explored very well in this film i i would say like no. the the they're very bluntly handled. And I, I just want to say, like, I think Helen's question is a very, very good one in general, which is, is this a horror film or is it a mess? I think horror or mess is a very good question to ask many of the films that are being made today. Uh, I would say it goes for some of the films, like we've been looking at some folk horror films, some of which are very interesting, I think. But I, I recently went to see Alex Garland's new film, Men. Mm-hmm. which is ostensibly a folk horror film. Like, folk horror is very, very trendy at the moment, right? Like, because of Ari Aster and because of um, Robert Eggers and because yeah. of a certain desire for nature and paganism and, you know, everyone's been trapped in their houses for two years and everyone wants to run around the forest and be a wolf or whatever. Um, but what you have also, I think, with this... <laughs> horror seems to precisely permit anything, quote-unquote, but anything is actually extremely nihilistic and boring if it's not done in an interesting way. I dare Mm -hmm. to say philosophical or psychoanalytic way, right? Like precisely as Helen's saying. So what you end up with is people relying on their image of what they think a genre is, so horror or folk horror more specifically, and hoping that the the faddishness, not just of the, the content or the themes, but also the faddishness of the form will do the work for Mm -hmm. it. So that they mm-hmm. don't have to actually explore any particularly interesting intellectual ideas, particularly around questions of sexual difference, which is also the subject of men. And it's also a film about female violence. And it's also a film about pregnancy. And it's also a film about, you know, deep rooted horror to do with bodies and, and so on. But it mm-hmm. is done in such a sort of, again, like literalist way, because I think partly as again, as Helen says, it's like the ambiguity and the ambivalence would be perceived to be a problem. If you didn't make something that was actually in the end kind of in conformity with today's acceptable opinions, one one way or the other, you know, like, I don't know, let's say it's it's okay to bash men or something like that, you know. And even where 
Garland's film, for example, hints at a possible other understanding of the relationship between men and women, it very quickly pulls back into a kind of, oh no, men are bad, men are all the same type male feminist Mm -hmm. position. Which paradoxically ends up being completely misogynist. Yeah, absolutely. 100% is. It's much more like the only, um, the emancipatory dimension of where where feminism has been at times, emancipatory is precisely in the revelation that women also are as ambivalent as men. Yeah, precisely. And this is why the so annoying French move of, oh, the rebellious female must be violent and murderous is so irritating. It's like, it's no. It's so misogynistic. Well, it is. And it's like, well, actually, what would be more subversive is if this woman had a fucked up childhood or something bad happened to her and she nevertheless did her best to lead a quote unquote normal life. Like, that would be yeah. a much more interesting film, actually. I also really like that idea, Benjamin. I might have to, like, make a film about, you know, some some uh, sports person coming to terms with their physical limitations. Like, I, that's totally what... And it is, like, not to be, like, you know, there's a right way to think. I don't think there is a right way to think, but there is an ideology and ideology re- critique, and it just happens to be that right now we're in this sort of neoliberal ideological age. But I, and I say this so often, like, the number of fucking feminists... And I say feminist, quote, unquote, like, female-orientated... Uh, horror films precisely for so many economic reasons um, it, it just it really is just, it grinds my gears to use a meta- a visual metaphor from this film um, but it's um, but again like you know the, the performance because like, every you know we live in a con- we live in a chaos not a complex and contradictory universe we're born of the big bang you know you're not going to get away from contradiction but the thing that just is always very annoying is the performative contradiction which happens when within an ideology the contradiction is not carried with and acknowledged and so everything just becomes blatantly ridiculous so obviously within woke neoliberal ideology um there is a huge contradiction in this essentialism of gender and then this sort of like throwing like performative you know oh it's not essentialist but then it is it becomes like even more reactionary in terms of gender and i just feel like this stuff about like oh look at her you know she's shaving her head she's dancing on a car you know there's no question about like she seems to be in sort of a middle class, upper middle class family. And, you know, some people might, she, she might be a sex worker because she enjoys being a sex worker and some people do. But then, you know, there's no question of like, you know, what forces have led her to do this? You know, what, what this work says about, you know, any, any question of like alienation. Really, it's just it's so random. It's so ungrounded. It's so random. It really speaks to sort of like a kind of perspective that's really not considered in any way mm-hmm. i think that some of it is is that neoliberalism is not as fully developed in france as it is in the united states or the uk and mm-hmm. yet cultural imports from the united states and the uk make their way into france so there is culture that is imported into france from a later stage in neoliberal acceleration than france itself is in and so you get a kind of what I think we would recognize as a Gen X, a subversion for subversion's sake, you know, 20 or 30 years ago thing, combined with Anglophone import of what is in vogue to talk about in terms of identity and in terms of, of cultural and social issues. And so that's what you're, I think you're seeing in this film. It's a combination of a French culture, which is 20 or 30 years back because neoliberalism is not developed as far uh, in its attitude and approach to norms and bourgeois sensibility and so on, uh, combined with imports from the Anglosphere interpreted through the lens of of 20 or 30 years ago, what would have been current in the 90s, I think a lot of this kind of uh, subversion for subversion's sake would hit home better and seem more genuinely critical and interesting. You think back to stuff like South Park, which broke taboos for the sake of breaking taboos Mm -hmm. and was lauded for it. Now, if you do that now in the United States, there's nothing interesting or transgressive about doing that. And there's nothing interesting or transgressive about this film. But it seems like a contemporary film because it's talking about the social issues, which are superficially the current social issues in the Anglophone discourse. So I think that's part of what's going on. And what you said about athletes, uh, one particularly interesting case uh, in, in Sumo, there is a Yokozuna, the grand champion of sumo. There's one guy and he occupies the highest rank in sumo. Uh, and his name is Terunofuji and he's a Mongolian and he's gigantic. 
uh, and he occupies the, the top rank in sumo. Now, the guys immediately below him are called the Ozeki, and none of the Ozeki are ready to join him in the top rank. But there's got to be a Yokozuna at every sumo tournament to open. You, know, you have to have a Yokozuna. You can't have the sport without a Yokozuna. So there's this enormous pressure on Terunofuji to maintain the performance of a Yokozuna. But he's aging and his body's breaking down and he comes out now with huge, gigantic knee pads and he has very limited lateral movement and he has to get by on being really big and, and clever and very skillful because his body has very obvious physical limitations. And every interview he gives, he talks about how much pain he's in and his philosophy for how to live with pain. But he can't retire because if he retires, there is no person who is worthy of being a Yokozuna available for the Japanese Sumo Association to promote. And the Japanese Sumo Association has, has apparently, I just saw a, a news report about this today, has said to Terunofuji behind closed doors that he needs to be Yokozuna for two more years until this uh, Asanayama, the sumo wrestler who was punished for breaking COVID rules and sent down multiple leagues until he works his way back up to Ozeki because the sumo elders think only Asanoyama is actually good enough to be Yokozuna. But because they punished him for breaking the COVID rules, they have to wait until he works his way up through the ranks to consider promoting him to Yokozuna. He has to re-earn his position. And so they want Terunofuji to hang on for two years. They can promote someone that would have otherwise been ready to be promoted to Yokozuna very likely, but they sent down multiple leagues for COVID reasons. And so this has created a very bizarre situation in which a man who is physically almost certainly not in shape to do this for two more years is under enormous pressure from the elders in his sport to continue in a role that he can't physically sustain so that they can finish carrying out this COVID punishment for this other sumo wrestler, Asanayama. It's the most Japanese thing I've ever heard. <laughs> You have no responsibility. You have to stay. And Terunofuji yeah. is himself Mongolian. So yeah. it, there's a wrinkle there too. Uh, I, I just think what, what comes out of this story for me is this is a, the, the sort of horror of being forced to continue to be yourself, right? It's like you must be this person for another two years, even though you physically can't or whatever. I mean, it reminds me of like a story in a very different field, but it's, I really like this voice artist called Emma Clark, and she's the voice of the tube. So she has this, uh, you know, very chromium voice. She's a very, very good professional voice artist. And she infamously did some voice parodies of her own voice doing the tube announcement in which she would joke about that the announcements were like telling people to step onto the tracks and stuff. And they were like quite like vicious and funny and, and she was having a go at people in the media but because it was her voice which in a way Transport for London well they said like they were like it's not your voice actually like it belongs to us mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you can't be doing parodies using your own voice because actually your voice isn't yours and they, they so they kind of sacked her or there was some very complicated ways she left but her voice is still the voice of the tube even though she's been disallowed and, and she's a very very funny person and she's she talks in interviews about um how she goes into supermarkets sometimes and she hears her own voice advertising cut price meat to herself and just this uncanniness of like encountering yourself and, and she talks all the time about how men write her letters you know fantasizing about mm -hmm. uh who she is and so some of her voice joke work is about I, I may not look anything like you imagined me to do. In fact, I definitely don't, you know, and it's this playfulness about the disembodied voice. And, but it's this, it just reminded me of this strange paradox where some people are themselves, but not themselves. It's, it, they've got a role, but in a very negative way, perhaps, you know, like the Emma queen. Clark, yeah. Like the two, mm -hmm. I mean, the two bodies of the, of the monarch is a famous one, right? That, yeah. you know, the, but, but yes, it's, I suppose it is like that. It's like people who are both the role and themselves, but in this situation, not in a, not in a good way. Like they're not necessarily coterminous mm -hmm. or there's a, yeah. there's a conflict. The hologram yeah. of the queen traveling yes. in the carriage. <laughs> exactly. The three body problem, the three bodies of the queen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I have a question. In my opening remarks, I slagged off the whole body horror genre. Mm. Is that an overreaction to this uh, Yes, actually, you know what? I did want to say on that point. Have you ever seen Society? No. I have not. Oh, my God. Okay, this is... 
the superlative body horror film. It is also the best 1980s American film about class. I think it's by Brian Munzer is the director that that was made in the 80s. It's literally the best film about class that American cinema produced. Uh, it's a fantastic film, also at the level of the use of prosthetics um, and body horror. And it and it's it's a brilliant commentary on ruling class parasitism um, and uh, how the ruling class. I don't know how to put it, uh, how it exploits others. But it's also a film about yeah. paranoia and uh, it's, yes. So the body horror genre is not in itself doomed to the kind of micro, you know, introversion pro- problem, the individualism problem that I think Benjamin is talking about. Good, um, I hope that's true. I, yes. I like being wrong when I slag off entire groups of things. Yeah. I, I think maybe we should do society as a counterpart to this to to show to see what is possible with this. Mm-hmm. You know, so genre. that's like a great film. It is. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, also, at some I, point we should do that. Yeah, so make me reconsider my my gut but, reaction. But it's funny because I didn't watch Titan as a horror film. Actually, I didn't really sort of see that it was supposed to be a horror film. Somehow, I just thought it was some you know edgy art house film I don't I don't you do you know what I mean like I'm not sure it was it was funny because you get these sort of art house I mean the question of what art house is when it's like obviously well what defines art house something that is a piece of art and not for like I guess originally and not for you know because because you don't obviously you have you have the money side of things and you have the sort of prestige and whatever side of things which has sort of been captured almost more by ideology than you look at something like Top Gun, which came out recently. And to me, Top Gun is much less ideological than this, uh, even though it's obviously slightly ideological, right? It's like a it's like a US Navy propaganda to a certain extent, but <laughs> precisely because it knows that it is, it's not, you know? It's like, so obviously that, but you have the sort of, you know, just as the university was once the sort of, or was it, was it, I'm basically, I'm being confronted all the time. It's like, you know, it was once this and I'm like, was it ever though? Because like, obviously the Lacan's university discourse is just the master's discourse in, dis- in disguise. So this whole thing that we're saying about like the, the midwit and the Dunning-Kruger of having a little bit of knowledge and having a certification and stuff. It's like, well, no, precisely the university has always in a way trained you out of reason towards ideology you know so yeah maybe I don't not know. always I'm, but since it's well, been a, a sort of a corporatist institution yes to some degree but i'm much more interested in like illich's analysis of institutions which is how the way in which certain things set up with certain values and how these values become mm-hmm. inverted mm-hmm. Yeah. so that you, yeah. you know in the in the name of the university is universalism or is a kind of you know uh, an aspect of um, how, how to put it? Like it, its ambition is on that scale, you know, to, yeah. to know to know what there is about everything potentially in every discipline. It's not how to train clerks, how to run a regime, you know. Like so, yeah. so the 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 original potential of the university is 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 there sort of in the abstract idea at the beginning, quote unquote, of the, whether we say Bologna or whether we say, you know, in the transition mm-hmm. between like monasteries and, and seats of higher learning or whatever we want to say, like in a way, yes, it's always clerks, but yes, it's also or initially a different kind of ambition. And sometimes some people within that institution have produced incredible things that have transformed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although most philosophers are were working always outside of the yes, university. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But well, but it doesn't mean that institutions don't go bad. Most of them mm-hmm. go bad. Health, university, charities, they all flip into their inverse. At, at the risk of sounding like a Straussian, I think the university has always kind of operated at two levels. There's the social justification that the university has to offer for the majority of people, not just majority of people in society, but majority of the people in the ruling class who are not going to understand its purpose. And then there's, uh, for those who make it far enough along, the actual purpose of the university that becomes apparent to some people, not most people, and not even, I would say, most people who work in universities, uh, not even most people who are university academics. I think most people, even who spend their whole lives in the university system, don't touch the actual purpose of the university. But the university is there because it has some capacity to get people to touch that purpose. 
And I think all institutions that have a kind of upside to them have this capacity to, in some way, lead people to this other purpose. And all, I think all institutions, and the same goes for religious institutions, for churches, for lots of different types of organization, there is this other purpose to them that is not the, it can never be the explicit justification because it can't, that other purpose can't be understood by most of the people who interact with it. So the universities have always been this kind of credentialing status uh, crediting thing where you send your kid to the university and they get certain kinds of social benefits. I think every version of the university has had that. Uh, but most of the people who go to the university are just there for a little bit and they just get a little bit of that. And then they go off into society and they have good memories of the university. They had a good time while they were there and it benefited them in some way. They were able to do better in their careers because they're associated with that place. And that causes them to support the university system and to endorse its continuing and sometimes even to donate money or resources to it. But th their experience of the university system was never what the university system was really about. The university just system gives that experience to enlist people in, into supporting it. Yeah. It does that to widen its, its support base within society. But the real reason it exists is, is for philosophy, not mm. that everybody gets there. Yeah, I mean, you make, I mean, in a way, institutions can be seen as exoteric and esoteric, like, or like yeah. all religious institutions are exoteric or esoteric. And, at the and, same and you time. could flip it around and you could say the real reason it exists is the social credentialing. And that is just yeah. an epiphenomenal thing that sometimes occurs. You could, you could put it either way. I think both ways of reading it are true. Dialectically, the university is a credentialing mechanism and it's a philosophical mechanism. Well, and now, the one relies on the other. Yeah, but now it's essentially a debt making machine. <laughs> you know, it's a machine for creating indebted subjects, right? Yep. First yeah. and foremost. Oh, yeah, as the credentialing becomes yeah. this uh, mainstream thing that even workers are supposed to participate in, even ordinary, regular workers are supposed to go and do it. It, it also, it, it, part of what I think is really sick about the existing university system is that it trades on the promise of philosophy to enlist people into indebting themselves. No, it promises them they're going to get philosophy and then they don't get it in part because at this point in undergrad, it's virtually impossible to get it. You have to stay longer and the amount of time that you have to stay in the university to have any chance of getting at the thing that is... is uh, what's, what's even sadder and more acute in my experience over the 13 years was the, the more the university became this you know, machine for creating indebted subjects, the harder it becomes at the everyday level for people to be... Uh, not anxious enough so that they're able to think so that 100%. even doing even doing philosophy becomes impossible at the daily mm -hmm. existential level because mm -hmm. people are so correctly worried about their own economic status that they cannot suspend their worry enough to have a conversation or a dialogue you mm -hmm. know i yeah. mean it really it's it's so awful it's like so philosophy Philosophy and that's becomes extended. impossible. Yeah. And that's oh, extended into impossible. grad school where yeah. now from the moment a person starts a PhD, they're thinking about how can I position my work in such a way that it will be published so that I can stay. Mm. And that corrupts the work heavily right from yeah. the beginning. And there's a, you know, there's this sort of dialectical loop in terms of, okay, you have the economic system, but you have this libidinal side and the, the sustaining of the libidinal side revolves around this ideological ideology of promise, which is this utopic oppositional ideology which sustains the, the economic system. And the more intensely awful it is, the more the ideological aspect side of it is. And so the publishing is always, you know, demanding oppositional, utopic um you know, ideology of promise related uh, articles. So if you are actually doing genuine philosophy, then you're not going to get published, which means that you're even more precarious. Um, yeah, it's just a disaster, absolute disaster. I, I, I think Adorno has always been the, the embodiment of this contradiction in the system where Adorno is able to, because of his level of university education, articulate a critique of the culture industry and apply that critique to philosophy itself and to the university system itself. Uh, and he's only able to do that because he has this education, which comes from this system. Mm -hmm. Well, this is this is something that's very true right now. Is that you? You know, of course, we haven't had as educated a population ever, and obviously, you know, lots of people's education is you know, it's it's not as a super high level. But the more people you educate, the more highly, highly, highly educated people you are. You do have so you have 
very thoughtful people roaming around, very, very thoughtful people. And the more toxic um, and ridiculous the system is, the more it is dangerous to the system to have these people be participating in it. So there is this real, I think, dilemma now where you, what do you do with all of these um, very insightful, very educated, precisely because they've been going through the university system, people, because obviously it's conducive that people get PhDs at a certain point, there aren't enough jobs, you know, you sort of keep, mm. keep creating. So what do we do now that we have this conundrum of people who are able, and, and what happens is, Unfortunately, I think you get a, a large amount of bullying and abuse in terms of, you know, the master-slave dialectic in the phenomenology of spirit that you have to cast out as non-dialectical, non-subject subjects in order to prevent them from exposing the truth of the system. You know, as in you have the, the master and the slave, the slave, you require to have a properly good, balanced system and other who's lacking subjectivity um, and and uh, subjectivity related to speech and thought can show you and expose, you know, the worst excesses of the system. And right now, what happens is you get precisely those people, and it happens in the arts all the time, cast out because if they were brought in, they would just ex- the system would implode under the weight of their insights. Right. So the market has to has to cast them out. And then as more and more people are cast out, mm. the large volume of people who have been cast out send a warning to others who might think about mm. getting that education, that that education will ultimately ruin your life. But it's and very silly because the, people, it, you really should not cast out a certain type of person. It's not yeah, beneficial I mean, to the system ultimately to do that. No, I mean, I think about the kind of people I know who are in universities who were the kind of lecturers who all the students liked, who were actually doing something interesting and maybe something that was kind of popular in the real world as well. And these were the people who were treated the worst by their colleagues. These were the people who didn't get promotions, who were actually actively held down by others, you know, out of envy, out of whatever, out of petty motivation, um, you know, and and... I think when I think about the university and the kind of person who started to flourish more and more, particularly in the UK after 2010, when the fee vote was passed and the fees tripled and, and you know, all the universities were much more on a centrist, centralised commercial footing and it was all about publicity and numbers. Um, and it was no longer fun. Like university was fun when I went in the 90s because it was free and everyone was just having a chat about things they found interesting. And it was very, very enthusiastic and very, you know, tough and and cool and and you know intense um but what happened was the kind of academic who managed to succeed in the new system was the sort of person who was prepared actually to subsume their desire for intellectual labor into bureaucracy so you end up with this fucking stupid system where people have like they've they've read history or something for dozens of years but now they're sort of managing spreadsheets and organizing meetings and you know you're like why but these are the people who thrive in this environment. They're like academics turned bureaucrats, basically. And they're also very safe from the institutional point of view because they are, are institutionalised, if you see what I mean. And they're, mm-hmm. they're extremely conservative at the level of their relation to the institution because they're basically protecting and working for the institution. They're not going to run around saying interesting, critical things about the current state of the university. But what, you know, I, because I, I'm thinking about something that's happening in my life right now. And, um, you know, it gets to a point where, I mean, obviously one can create one's own thing, whatever, sort of, it's very difficult. But I am sort of coming to confront as the system is becoming more and more toxic, losing, losing grip on reality, becoming like precisely so un-utilitarian, quote unquote, to be drastically unutilitarian and just disastrous. And you have these people who are like, this is what's happened. This is what's happened. This is what's happened. I mean, you look at the UK government right now, this quote unquote populist government that's popular with nobody. And it's a bunch of idiots. And it's like, there are, you know, it used to be maybe not, you know, again, as I was saying that I've noticed that, you know, maybe it was ever thus, but now it's just particularly obvious you used to maybe think that, you know, the, the civil service had the, the greatest minds or the greatest minds became politicians. And there was some sense of like you became a politician to to do good in the world and to Mm-mm. to protect people against the worst ravages of the market system or whatever. And now it's literally and, you know, of course, it's not, you know, neoliberalism would have it that it is the responsibility of the individual. It's not, you know, it's the system that is precisely toxic, but the system demands 
idiots to be running it precisely because the system is completely idiotic. Yeah, exactly. But this so is like... So weeding out the individual idiots is not enough. No, no, because... And also, like, people will... The people who are not those people who aren't institutionalizable will leave or, or be forced to leave. So, the yeah, the institution starts to take on its own demonic propensity. And I think mm-hmm. Gambin talks about this extremely well. You know, it's like the anthropological machine in a way. It's like, creates machines. This is the problem. <laughs> like, human beings create machines and institutions that then destroy them. And, and this is why Illich says, you know, the corruption of the best is the worst. Because as you say, people go into something with these high-minded aspirations, which are very socially beneficial. Like, I want to be a human rights lawyer. I want to be a teacher. I want to help people. I want to heal people. I want to teach, you know. And they end up being fucking petty bureaucrats and Stasi and, you know, doing terrible things. <laughs> because the institution is, like, not doing the thing that people thought it was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is why I think Adorno's critique came too soon. Mm-hmm. Adorno's critique of, of a kind of widespread instrumental reason that has infiltrated every aspect of society and culture uh, in the post-war era, it was a little bit early for that. Mm. And no, I think he's, it, he's correct. Th- yeah, th- those arguments, I think, are much stronger as neoliberalism further intensifies and as you know this discussion of, of late capitalism there i do not think we had anything that we could call a late capitalism in the 50s and 60s we had a middle capitalism a capitalism of uh, of re-embedding in polanyi's sense of uh, re-embedding the market in society and taking into account the social and political effects of the market and adjusting for them uh, I, yeah i think and Peter that Osborne, has been yeah. unraveling Peter Osborne. Sorry, I was going to say on this this late capitalism thing. Peter Osborne, my um, supervisor and philosophy professor, would always say it's not late capitalism; it's the late stage of early capitalism, precisely in the way you're describing. And we don't yet know what late we don't know what late capitalism is. Basically, late capitalism can only be known in retrospect after somehow you've gotten rid of capitalism. Then you can say, Mm. "Oh, this is where the late part was." Yes, exactly. But the reason that the term is thrown around now is that people want, you mm-hmm. know, libidinal and utopian sense it to be the late. They want to live to see the next thing. Yeah, people always want to see the end of something that they or the beginning of something that they are committed to. But a true believer, it wouldn't matter if it happened in your lifetime or not, right? But this is the thing: is this, this, these sort of fundamentalist types who think that the end of the world is coming right now when they happen to be alive. Mm. Um. Mm. But what if it is this time? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I I have absolutely no idea, but I do know that we we live in a that the 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 systems quote unquote are completely putrid and getting worse. And the, the more qualified people I know, for instance, one of my my best friends here who was the f- finished top in her you know, the, the, the exam, the national exam to get into the ENS here. I mean, she cannot, so she's almost, she's a, a teacher, like a, high, a prepa teacher and a, an independent researcher, precisely because she's too good. Mm. And that's very, and I think she's been having a real existential crisis because obviously neoliberalism would have it that you're the only one, you're individually responsible, you failed. But actually when you line up all the, I mean, this is anecdotal, the people I know, that has happened too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, as as all of this keeps going, there is a tendency as utopia seems impossible to embrace dystopia. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have a lot of people now looking for, okay, maybe there can't be some kind of wonderful moment in which it all changes for the better, but maybe there will be a horrible moment in which it all changes for the worse. And at least that will be a change. And so a lot of people are now libidinally invested in dystopia. But it's the same thing, exactly but flipped same. around. Mm-hmm. And to really get out of out of that swing between utopia and dystopia, either the wonderful thing happens or the terrible thing must happen. You have to consider the possibility that it may just keep going on like this. Mm-hmm. It and it may change actually very slowly. And all this talk about everything's changing so fast might all be misplaced. Maybe it's just very slowly, very slowly. The post-war system is being slowly ground down, very, very slowly. And maybe it will take many, many more decades or you know, centuries. Who knows? Make it, make it as big as you want it for the whole thing to grind down into a fine paste. And in the meantime, we'll all just be along for the ride, watching movies and talking about them. So 
Uh, we're at an hour, so we'll finish on my... Not that depressing, because it's not dystopian note. <laughs> and uh, and we'll go to the B-side. I think Helen's got a good idea for the B-side, so I'm excited to I'll find out what that it. is. Yeah, but I you will it. remember it. Okay. You will. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.